Welcome to Back Chat with Miss Barbecue, your friendly neighborhood drag queen. I am honored and just beside myself to have in the studio today Zachary Drucker, writer, producer, performance artist, and close, close soul sister. Hi, Miss Barbecue. <laughs> Hi, Zachary. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here. We're having like a leisurely chat <laughs> as if we were just sitting around the table at my house. Having tea like, like we've done before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's and it's called Back Talk with Barbecue. Back Chat. I'm joking. That was a joke. <laughs> back Talk with Barbecue. <laughs> Don't back talk me. <laughs> What's going on, girl? Oh my goodness. Where do I even begin? We have such a history together. And you've just blossomed over the years. Over the 10 years we've known each other. I know. I was just remembering that we met very early in Mustache Monday days when they were still at the Alexandria Hotel. Yeah. And this is downtown LA when downtown LA was having a renaissance. Yeah, renaissance With nightlife. Exactly. And you were still living in the Inland Empire. Mm Mm-hmm. And you were kind of having your own renaissance as a queen. I was just coming back on the scene, yeah. And Lawrence King was a young person who was murdered in school and there was sort of a memorial tribute and that was the first night that we met i, I remember, remember that yeah wow mm-hmm. and then we were door girls together for five years for five years at the infamous shits and giggles which is a party that we did in downtown los angeles mm-hmm. did a lot of growing and Kiki-ing. grew up together a lot of kikiing mm-hmm. and it's funny you were one of the first people I ever came across who owned their own sensibility you owned your transness, even though you were still finding yourself. When did you know that you were trans? What was the moment? You know, I think that it meant different things to me at different times. When I was really young, three, four years old, some of my earliest memories are of dressing up in my mom's clothes and of selecting her clothes for the day as she was getting ready to go to work, kind of like having great excitement about what was mom going to wear? How was I going to put her outfit together. As I reached five, six years old, kindergarten, I think those are the years when I started to realize that that was different than the way the other boys were. But I had a lot of female cousins that I was close to. I was a creative kid. And then I discovered the word transgender when I was 14 years old. I shoplifted a copy shoplifted. of yes, a copy of Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw, which had come out probably a few years before that in the mid '90s. And when I discovered the word transgender, I realized that it was a answer to a question that I'd always had. And ever since I was a kid, people would ask, are you gay? Or, you know, there was always this sort of assumption that it was about my sexuality or who I was attracted to, because there was no awareness of trans people. I mean, trans people were like so far on the margins that you saw trans folks on talk shows, you could see them, you could identify them and know that they were out there without it being a part of your actual physical reality. So the breadcrumb path to finding myself as a trans person, I think, in a lot of ways started with Gender Outlaw and Kate Bornstein. And I've always really subscribed to her ideology of making your own rules and inventing the thing for yourself because there are more than two options. 
And as a creative person, as an artist, I always felt I could take liberties inventing who I wanted to be. Part of that was being Zachary Drucker and not feeling pressured by an external world where maybe there wasn't as much space for us to sort of create room for a different way of being. And then I lived as a gender-fluid person, gender-nonconforming person for 10 years, and I started testosterone blockers when I was 22, 23. And I think that was when I started the kind of incline towards having a more feminized self. Well, I met you right at the crux then. Mm -hmm. Now, as an artist, when did you know this is what I want to do as an artist? Well, I used that anecdote of dressing up as the beginning point of my art career. Because what I would do is I would dive into this chest of dress-up clothes and I would come up from the basement and I would have on like my mom's old prom dress or like a dance costume and my dad would take a Polaroid picture of me. And I had this collection of Polaroid pictures of me as these feminine selves. And I still think of that as my first art project Photography provided a place for me to see myself outside of my physical reality, outside of the constraints of my physical reality. And then when I was a young teenager, I discovered photography again. And it was the thing that got me through high school, was spending time in the darkroom. With Transparent, how did you get involved with that project? When Jill Soloway started to write the pilot, she had met Reese Ernst, my collaborator, and fellow producer on Transparent at Sundance in 2011. It was around the same time, I think, that her parent came out as trans. And Reese's film was about a trans man and his girlfriend on a road trip. It was his thesis film as he was getting his master's at CalArts called The Thing. And a few months later, a friend of mine connected us again to Jill and said, Jill's writing this pilot about a transgender parent and you guys should connect and talk about it. And Jill picked up the correspondence right away and said, why don't you guys come over? Here's the pilot. She was still drafting it, but we knew pretty immediately that it was going to be major. And we've just been thrilled to be a part of it. And I remember when Jill had us over for lunch that day, she used the word collaboration. And we were both coming out of an art community for the most part. So that was exactly the right word for her to use with us. And she has a really non-hierarchical way of working. People really do contribute to the creative process. I heard about that on on the set and stuff. It's very collaborative with everybody from the grips to the lighting people. Everyone is able to put their say in something. Absolutely. And I've worked on the set before to know it's a very collaborative set. I mean, certain things needed to be in place, but it was a very collaborative set. As an artist, you have a certain sensibility. Do you always factor... I am a trans person doing this project, or do you see yourself as Zachary doing this project who happens to be trans? <laughs> Whenever people ask me about who I am, I always start by saying I'm a human. Yes. And when people want you to kind of lay out your identity keywords, I always start with human. 
artist, trans person, a Jew, I'm Jewish. Um, that's a part of my identity. You know, all those things, yeah, play in. But I think that sometimes we get so caught up in seeking definition and finding solace in definition that we undermine our common humanity and the fact that we're all one. So I think always starting with like, I'm a human, you're a human, you know, there's no way to draw boundaries between that. This is Back Chat with Miss Barbecue, your friendly neighborhood drag queen. We are sitting here with writer, producer, performance artist, Zachary Drucker. You're very, very humble, which I find very endearing. I also see you pay very much respect to your elders. Hollywood Lawn, Flawless Sabrina, Vaginal Davis are just some of the few people that you've paid not just homage to, but have really made others pay attention to how important they are. A lot of artists don't do that. Why have you made it upon your take it upon yourself to make people pay attention to the elders? Mm, I have a long answer for that. <laughs> I mean, I think a big part of it is actually has a lot to do with being Jewish, like having a Jewish heritage where there were old people in my family. I had a great grandmother and two of her cousins, Leo and Frida. They were all from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. My great-grandmother came here in 1914. So this is even pre-World War One. They were pioneers. They came through Ellis Island to New York. They were peasant Jews living in the hills of Austro-Hungary. I mean, it's like kind of Poland now. But anyways, they spoke Yiddish. They spoke... German, Hungarian, Hebrew, English. You know, like English was like their fifth language. And knowing these people as a young person, I was so captivated by that. I was like, oh my God, you experienced this completely different world. And now you're here and you're still here. And this is four generations and I'm just this little kid. And then one of the cultural values, I think, of Judaism in a way is being a mensch, right? And like, taking care of your elders. Hmm. So it was mandated that I would spend a certain amount of time with my great-grandmother, basically, which I love because she always had candy (laughs) in her drawer. But I also just loved her because she was so different than anybody else in my life. And I think that I've always felt a lot of comfort around elders. And I realized, I mean, just the other day, I spent with my friend... Deborah, who's not quite an elder, she's 68. But I was like, I prefer hanging out with Deborah than I do most people my own age. There's just, I think, more to learn. So, in a way, it's a personal preference. You know, there's, <laughs> and I just love hearing, especially with Holly and Flawless, who I have been closest to, and Vag mentioned as well, lives in Berlin. And, you know, I see her when I'm in Berlin. I see her when she comes back here. We mainly have, like, an email relationship, which is hilarious because she's such a wordsmith. And her emails are brilliant. Like, I frame her emails and put them up on the wall. They're so funny. When it comes to Holly, the late Hollywood lawn, and Flawless Sabrina, they have these stories about what it was like to be trans and to be a queen pre-Stonewall in the 1960s. And it's such an important 
they have such a survival strategy for us living under these impossible circumstances. They were both incarcerated multiple times for different reasons. You know, for Holly, it was sort of white-collar crime. Like, she was trying to make it. She was a hustler. She had been living on the streets as a teenager in Times Square, hustling, and then eventually was impersonating, like, a French ambassador's wife and went to take... Anyways, this is all in her book, A Low Life in High Heels, and was incarcerated after that, I think, for a year or maybe under a year. And Flawless was incarcerated a hundred times for the felony of cross-dressing because she was organizing drag competitions in different states over 10 years, from 1959 to 1969. There is this misperception that gender subversion is a youth phenomenon, but it's something that's existed since the earliest human civilizations. And we have a lot to learn from those previous generations. I think we have to also pay it forward and invest in the next generation for all the people you mentioned. They've invested in young people. And cultivating friendships with young people, I think that with our parents, for example, the first half of our lives, our parents are teaching us. And then in the second half, we're teaching them. We're keeping them in the world. We're the ones who are more active. When it comes to elders and the LGBTQ community, many of these folks don't have children. And so we have a responsibility as a chosen family, as a tribe, to help each other out. I believe that too. And I think I got some of that from you. And I hope that young people take an interest in their history. I think it's yet to be seen in a way, especially when it comes to trans medical interventions and trans adolescents. These kids have ultimately an opportunity to not even need to acknowledge their transness in their adult years when you look like way down the line. And again, I think that these are also always going to be divided along class lines. Certain people are going to have parents who are going to say like, great, oh, let's take you to the doctor. Let's get this taken care of. And other folks are not going to have that kind of luxury. Have you ever found people are surprised, this is so awful to say, how well-spoken you are? As a trans person, you're so well-spoken. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever gotten that? Have you ever totally. gotten that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like, don't even know like, what to say to that, but like, I have. Like, they're, they're, they're totally surprised you have, like, an MFA <laughs> and you've done all kinds of work. They're like, wow, you're not a hooker. You're not a sex worker. Nothing wrong with sex workers. Wow, you're so well-spoken for a trans person. I Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> I feel like expectations. <laughs> God knows. Yeah, I have gotten that. How do you respond? Do you just nod your head? or Because I find myself getting oh. on the defense with that. I mean, people usually don't. Do people say it explicitly? Oh, I've had people say explicitly. Well, you're so well-spoken for a drag queen, for a black person, for a gender nonconformist. You're so... And I find myself putting my fist up. Yeah. But I'm like, I personally have to forgive them and just go, they don't know any better. They've never been around me. I guess I'm an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Have you found yourself going... I guess I'm an anomaly and I have to own that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one way to respond to it is just to say to people, I hope that you'll continue to challenge your assumptions about people of color, about gender nonconforming folks, about trans folks, because, yeah, they're exposing a certain amount of ignorance. And that said, I'm sure that we are disarming. People see me, they think whatever they think when they Mm -hmm. see me. And then I open my mouth and they realize that I'm trans. And it's usually like when I start talking to them and when I start interacting, you can just see the like shock. Facial gymnastics, I call it. It's just the registering (laughs) of like, oh, this person just opened their mouth and they're not what I thought they were. And like all my expectations about what trans people are. Ultimately, I think we can use it to our advantage. That is a place of power. Do you ever get tired of everything you do being trans? Like, you ever want to do a project that wasn't trans? I haven't gotten to that point yet. No. And I have so many girlfriends who do, who have, who felt like they've had careers. Even Calpurnia Adams, I think, in, like, a Facebook post recently was like, every project I've ever done has the word trans in it. You know, trans America and the dating show she had on Logo. Mm-hmm. It was Trans American Love Story. Mm-hmm transparent even you know she was on transparent and i think for calpurnia you know she's been around longer and probably does feel fatigued by that i think that i'm still at a point where i feel excited about all the possibilities about a gender-free future and Mm -hmm. i think that when we're moving towards that horizon we see this even as a moment on a trajectory, like on our way to something where people are really free of gender roles. Everybody, not just trans folks, but everybody. I mean, that's what I'm working towards. That's my cause. For me, being a gender nonconformist, I feel I'm in the middle of being gay or trans. And I've gotten it from both sides of, well, you're gay, just deal with it. Well, you're trans, take your hormones and be quiet. And I'm like, no, I'm gender nonconformist. I feel just as not understood, just as the trans community was. I feel like I'm not understood on why I stand behind gender nonconformist. Mm-hmm. Almost like how bisexuals are treated, you mm-hmm. know, just pick a side, mm-hmm. you know, kind of deal. And so I feel gender nonconformist is the next group that needs to be understood and talked about. Yeah. I don't always make those distinctions because I think that. The fight for gender equality includes hundreds of years of feminism has led us to this point. We're we're talking about gender equality for a larger group of people. In recent years, there's been more conversation about how masculinity is restrictive and how it prevents adolescent boys from like experiencing a full range of human behavior gender roles restrict so many people. We're all navigating that in our own ways. I think that being a gender nonconforming person is very difficult. And I did that for years too before I transitioned from like 14 to 24, basically. I was androgynous, I wore heels, I wore makeup, but I was not trying to present as a woman. I was presenting as Zachary. a mix of yeah, as a mix of signals. And I think that that is a more difficult position 
So I have a lot of admiration and respect for you and for you choosing to um, be comfortable in that space and to claim it. I think that social justice movements right now are gaining a lot of momentum. I mean, this is like the 60s all over again, and it's class consciousness that came from Occupy Wall Street. It's people recognizing that there is a huge disparity between the working class, the middle class, and the uber-wealthy. I think that people are fed up. And then I think with Black Lives Matter, we have a conversation around violence against black and brown bodies, the prison industrial complex, and how it's basically a new form of... Capitalism. Yeah, and it's a continuation of slavery, ultimately. So it's not just one group rising up. It's a consciousness throughout society, you see. Yeah, and I think that we also see this rise of white supremacy, of misogyny, Mm -hmm. of patriarchy. I mean, I think that we're kind of like in this carcass like we're all standing in this carcass right now and there's certain people who are trying to like pull us back into the 1950s but once you see something you cannot unsee it we're moving forward whether folks like it or not and i think that in the united states of america we have a social democracy where we're able to put our opinions and our perspectives out there and it's actually our civic duty to do so. I mean, mm-hmm. we're exercising mm-hmm. our power as citizens just in doing this radio show. This is Back Chat with Miss Barbecue, your friendly neighborhood drag queen. We are sitting here with writer, producer, performance artist, Zachary Drucker. How do you handle misogyny in the straight community and in the LGBT community? It's in different forms, in different ways. Have you come across it? And how do you handle it like have you learned you know when to shut up when to speak up or do you speak up you give them the drucker effect (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean like i've been able to navigate that through my friendships with women and with cisgender women and with my mother even and kind of like learning how to identify misogyny and where it's operating and when it's operating And I think that it gets confused sometimes in the trans community, for example. I think that when you really examine the ways that misogyny is operating, and I think that for you and I, like, we were always queer. And so there were ways that we probably have gotten male privilege at certain points in our lives, but there's also a way that we were threatening male privilege, right? And have always been treated like that. I could never change in the locker room when I was a kid, for example. Yeah, we had to go to like... The bathroom or the corner or something. And run across the school to not be late to gym class. And it was a challenge, I think, before I transitioned for me to recognize how I had ever benefited from male privilege because I think that queerness, in our kind of gender queerness especially, is kind of outside of that in a way. How do you handle cis women who tell you you'll never be one of us? That sentiment is out there, and it's well-publicized. I think that that's a really small vocal minority of 
you know, they're called TERFs, trans, exclusionary, radical feminists. And last year, like, there was this article in the New York Times by Eleanor Burkett. And that was a big deal. And then there was an article in the New Yorker that was really kind of um, investigating what one of those communities is like and what their belief system is and what it's rooted in. But I think that we're all in this together. And all of the the women and feminists in my life are on the same page. I've never in my immediate circle encountered a woman who felt... I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. There are certain people in my periphery, I think, who have been uncomfortable with me in a ladies' room or something like that. It has happened. But I don't think that we can give up our agency to self-define. I think that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. When you say like, and ultimately it's scarcity politics. It's this notion that you being who you are takes away some aspect of me being who I am. And the reality is that there's like space for all of us. Just because cis women exist and trans women exist, we're not compromising each other's positions. Zachary, you're quiet when we hang out and we we kiki and stuff, but I look at your work and it's like boom, 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 boom of major, major stuff. Thank you, Barbie. I mean, I enjoy the process. I enjoy working on things. I don't think I've ever done it for recognition. It's not a bad thing for people who do. My preference is always to fly under the radar, quite honestly, and just to not be bothered so I can continue doing what I'm doing. Well, that's changed. You know, the past Emmy, few years. past few years with Emmy nominations and transparent and stuff like that, you're not under the radar now. And that does change your perspective of what you mm-hmm. attach your name to, what you sign off on, even what you post. Have you found yourself more careful of what you put your name on? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. As your platform grows, the responsibility comes with it. And it's a struggle. I don't think that there's one right way to do it. But the more visible you are, the more critical people are of what you're doing. And that's something that's disheartening. Have you ever gotten any hate mail? Yeah, but girl, I was getting hate mail when I was 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I remember. I, I think I saved this, like, letter. 12 years old yes. getting hate mail. Oh, my God. Let what? Me tell you. In my locker, I used to get, like, death threats. These boys that just wanted to kill me. It's nothing new. You know, hate mail at 12 years old, Zachary? That's... I think I was in high school. It probably started when I was a freshman in high school. But yeah, I was bullied a ton oh, you as were. a kid, so it's not new for me. Thank you so much, Zachary, for joining us today in the studio. Thank um, you for having me, Barbie. I look forward I to... the time of my life. <laughs> let's look... do it again soon. Let's do it again soon. I, I look forward to sitting with you over many dinners over the years. For the rest of our lives. Soul sister. Ha <laughs> ha.